0: I'd like this morning to take up the second part of the theme that I started last week in our Being Human series. We were looking at being human, being uncertain. And last week um, we looked at what the Bible has to say about Abraham. On the one hand, recorded as our father in the faith and healed for his faith. um, And yet at the same time recognizing that the Old Testament scriptures are very honest and open about the struggles that he had in trusting God, the times when it was difficult to know or to believe whether God's promises would actually be fulfilled in his case. And we looked at the challenge to the church and the individual in the light of that. This week I want to deal more with a, uh, an understanding of doubt. I've used the title An Anatomy of Doubt. I've stolen the idea from a, uh, an African-American preacher called William Augustus Jones, Jr., who some of us had the privilege of listening to in one of our sermon workshops who preached a sermon called An Anatomy of Forgiveness. But basically, um, just to look at the issues associated with doubt, and to try and dissect and lay open some aspects of doubt, and how it works within us, and what we need to do as we we deal with it as Christians. So I want to begin, first of all, by saying what doubt is not. Um, Doubt is not skepticism. Skepticism is a choice. Skepticism is a state of mind, a way of viewing the world or viewing the information that you're given in the world. Skepticism is more a decision to doubt. We may have many reasons to be skeptical. We talk these days about sometimes being skeptical about politicians. Uh, And while that's not good for society, if that is the case, sometimes it's not without reason. We talk about being skeptical of second-hand car salesmen. It's not fair in them at all, Norman. I completely disagree with that. But sometimes it's not without reason. We can be sceptical about preachers, about leaders who have everything sewn up and in neat formulas. And sometimes in that context, it's not a bad idea to be sceptical. But for some people, scepticism is just the default mindset. It's a choice in life, a way of thinking and viewing everything. It might be prompted by bad experiences, but it's still a way of thinking about how to respond and to see the world that we choose to adopt for ourselves. Being uncertain or having doubts is not in the same league as skepticism, which is a more committed decision to doubt. You shouldn't let yourself slip from being uncertain and addressing doubts you may have to adopting a skeptical attitude about everything to do with the Christian faith. Recognize the distinction and beware of it. Doubt is not unbelief in the strictest sense. If scepticism is a decision to doubt, unbelief is a decision not to believe. Some people who struggle to believe, who struggle with questions, fear or assume that they have become unbelievers. But unbelief is a choice. Just as you choose to believe something, so in the end you choose not to believe I think it's partly the stigma that uncertainty can carry in evangelical circles that means that the person with honest doubts and struggles sometimes assumes the label to themselves as no longer believing, as an unbeliever, when that might not actually be the case. They may feel they wear the label of being an unbeliever and therefore act accordingly, even if what they're doing is just struggling with doubts, but don't have the freedom or the liberty or the acceptance of a community to express those. When you go to the doctor with a problem that you can't quite put your finger on and you get a diagnosis, you tend to act on the basis of the diagnosis. You take your pills, you slap on your cream, you take to your bed, or whatever is appropriate. If the Christian community labels or diagnoses doubt and struggles with uncertainty as unbelief or backsliding, you will probably do whatever is appropriate according to the diagnosis. The diagnosis might be wrong. You're not an unbeliever unless you have come to the point where you have chosen not to believe. That decision can be a very long way from having doubts or struggling with uncertainties. What can we say about doubt? Doubt is related, I think, to at least these four things. Anxiety, credibility, limitation and sin, both as a condition and a choice. McGrath in his book on doubt is very helpful in this subject. His point is simply that our doubts can sometimes be symptomatic of struggles we have with ourselves and nothing to do with God. The situations, he says, you've been brought through in the past may cause you anxieties relating to your faith. Your past may predispose you to certain doubts, anxieties and worries. Our doubts often mirror our situation, says McGrath. Which is why discussing doubt and doubts in a pastoral context is never isolated from listening to the person or listening for the person and what they're saying. The question always has to be, are the doubts that we struggle with an intellectual issue or a life issue? Doubt and uncertainty can appear to be about God's goodness or God's faithfulness or God's reliability or God's love or God's forgiveness or God's acceptance. But in truth, They may be about our experience of goodness, faithfulness, reliability, love, forgiveness and acceptance as we have experienced it with other people. Doubt and uncertainty may arise from anxieties about ourselves, arise from convictions that we are not up to believing, to performing spiritually as we believe or think a believer ought. Your doubts or uncertainties about your faith may be, may be as much or more about yourself and your circumstances. Often there's a close link between anxiety, however it arises, and doubt or uncertainty. I think doubt can be related to credibility. There are often issues of credibility which give rise to uncertainty or doubt. The credibility of the Bible, when somebody begins to explore, explore avenues they haven't before. The credibility of Christian doctrine the credibility of miracles or other supernatural phenomena, the credibility of the resurrection, the credibility of the second coming, the credibility of our interpretation of scripture, the credibility of our practice of Christianity, the credibility of our intellectual arguments for Christianity, the credibility of our fellow Christians, the credibility of our church life and community. Sometimes, some or all of these things just don't seem to be credible. Believable. And the more we chew on the credibility of one of these things, the more we will often find that everything related to it is affected by the same sense of lack of credibility. There may be good reason for concern over the credibility of some of these things on my list. There are plenty of people out there, particularly my generation, who aren't anywhere near church or Christianity anymore, because something that I've listed just didn't seem to be credible anymore. And it's very hard when you're disillusioned or struggling with something not to let it affect your attitude to everything that is related to it. For example, you buy a bad car, a duff Ford. What's the advice John will give you? Never touch a Ford. No, I'm sure that's not quite true. They're rubbish. That's the way it used to be for my dad in the shipyard. Do you know? When it came to buying a car, you took the accepted wisdom. If somebody you knew in the squad had a duff Ford, you never touched a Ford. Fords were rubbish. In the same way, if you meet a bunch of hypocrites, it's very easy to begin to consider most Christians that way. It's safer. It's easier. It's protective for yourself. If you find some issues about the Bible difficult, it's easier to find that everything is tarred with the same brush, without even realising sometimes that that's what you're doing. Uncertainty and doubt can legitimately arise from issues of credibility. The big challenge is to deal with the issue in hand, And not allow everything or everyone associated with the faith to be seen in the same light. There's the issue of limitation. Uh, McGrath in his little book on doubt has an interesting section in which he talks about not being able to see the stars during the day. I don't think he means the ones in the magazines and TV. We talk about the stars coming out at night. It's a quaint but he says utterly erroneous phrase. The stars don't come out at night. The stars are always there. They're always giving out their light from the depths of the universe. The thing is, you can't see them against the brightness of the day. You need the darkness of night to see the stars. Our eyes and our eyesight can't cope or differentiate in the daylight. McGrath's point is, stars don't need darkness to exist, but we need darkness if we are to see them and convince ourselves that they do exist. So it is with God. Just as our eyes can't see the stars during the day, so our minds can't take in the fullness of God. It's the way we experience things, rather than the way things are. That is the problem. Being human places limits on what we can see, know and understand. Being prepared to accept these limitations is an integral part of growing in the faith. Sometimes when we can't get the answers we need or feel we need, we throw up the head. Sometimes... Speaking from experience, when I can't get the service I want in a restaurant or a shop or whatever, I say, well, stuff this and leave. I'm not particularly interested in listening to excuses or reasons. I want what's on the menu, and I want it now, or I'm not hanging about. I'd have to say personally, I can say that there are overtones of that attitude even in my own relationship with God. If it's not making sense, if it's not working out, if it's not resolving... It's very easy to feel well, stuff that and move on. We're sometimes not great at accepting that there are limitations on what we on how we see and understand things. The danger is that I create my own form of unbelief. Faith requires me to stick with God's revelation within the context of my limitation. And that can be very frustrating. But I mustn't walk away from it. Doubt can be related to sin, both as a condition and a choice. Given our sinful human condition, uncertainty and doubt are going to be facts of life. We considered that last week uh, in the sermon last week, so I don't intend to say much more about it now. However, doubt can be sinful as a refusal to trust God when we know we ought to. Or it can be the cover for sinfulness. What I mean is that expressions of doubt about the faith can sometimes be a symptom of an underlying problem that makes the things we do and the way we live incompatible with our faith. It happens that failure to acknowledge or deal with wrongdoing in our lives leads to an internal hypocrisy which we can't resolve. And if we refuse to resolve it, we will end up walking away from the faith. If we walk away because of unresolved sinfulness, we will need to find some other public reason for walking away, to justify ourselves to ourselves and ourselves to others. And sometimes doubt or uncertainty or struggle with credibility is the most common way to deal with that. Unresolved sin in our lives can generate internal conflict of faith. Internal conflict of faith will be resolved one way or another. If it's not resolved by confession and restoration it will most likely be resolved in unbelief. Unbelief will be rationalized because we have, we have to be able to live with ourselves and the people we have become. Doubt can be related to any one or all of these kinds of things. What else can we say about the whole theme of doubt? Doubt. On a positive note, I'd want to say one of the things we need to do is to know ourselves and know our limitations and know our makeup. You need to know your limitations in life. I mean, just think about it physically Uh, and sport, for example. All of us are encouraged to exercise these days. Usually when you go to a gym, if that's your kind of thing, they do a profile of you to ensure that what you get up to on their equipment and their machines doesn't mean an instant heart attack. Um, We all have limitations in every area of life and we need to know what they are and we need to know what's appropriate. We all have different limitations. To keep strong in the faith you need to know your limitations. And God knows you have limitations and loves you the way you are and you won't be pushed beyond what you can bear. But understand that just as you can't maintain fitness without effort and regular exercise, so you can't maintain a spiritual life without spiritual disciplines of some sort. You need to know yourself and you need to know your limitations. It's not for nothing that the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Part of the spiritual exercises of coming to grips with God's word for the psalmist was the purpose of being able to work within his limitations and live within his limitations. In the midst of the temptations Jesus faces in the wilderness, the sustaining power during a time of great physical and psychological weakness and weariness for Jesus arises from the word of God when he is tempted and when uh, the temptations are brought to him his answer it is written man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God and when the devil quotes scripture and says for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone Jesus answered him it is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus says to him the third time, Away from me, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You can't run long distance without the right fuel. Those of you who are going to be running tomorrow, you probably know by now you need to stock up on your carbohydrates before you get out there. Those slow burning things that help you keep the distance and go running. Is it tomorrow you run marathon? Alright, okay, forget That's why I'm getting so many blank (laughs) loops. When you come to run the marathon, make sure you stock up on your carbohydrates. Wrong Monday, I think. Equally, it's important to know the limitations on you as your circumstances change. The arrival of children in a family. The arrival of ill health. A new job. A new location. Any major change in life can bring new limitations on your capacity to think, or to pray, or to read scripture. Such limitations are sometimes misread by us as the beginning of spiritual failure. It's not long until that translates into doubts about the reality of the spiritual life. And it's particularly true for those of you who are very methodical and consistent in your devotional times. If your routines get broken, you can feel like it's your faith that is broken. Know your limitations. And there's no point in getting out of your depth. If you compete in a sport, you need to compete in the right class. Were I to have the courage to try and run in a race this year, I would now be in the vets 50 plus category. Can you believe that? But at least I'd be running in the right class against people of my own sort of age. Maybe not my decrepitude, but my age. But if you want to progress to the first 15 or the 18, that's fine. You've got to work at it. You've got to build up the strength and build up the capacity. But meantime, you play within your limitations. You play with the class best suited for you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not attempting to stop anyone in this room exploring all the difficult issues that there are to explore in regarding the reliability of the Bible, science and faith, and all the rest of it. But I am warning you that if you don't work within your limitations, you will be overwhelmed and you will get lost. Some people leave the faith because they weren't able able to deal with the difficult issues they encountered on their own and got out of their depths. Go looking for help. Go looking for those who can help train you, make you stronger, give you the resources you need. Know your makeup. This is not a return to the being beautiful thing, I promise you. I'm not going to ask you about your lipstick numbers and all the rest of it. But it is a plea to encourage you to do some self-analysis if you're struggling with your faith or when you're struggling with your faith. we really touched on this in one way in the section on sin. But there are other ways in which this is important. For example, we have different personalities. We are all different. There are generally accepted now the fact that there are different personality types. Psychological measurement and management is possible because we recognize that there are different types of personalities. There is, for example, the famous Myers-Briggs type indicator based on the work of uh, of Carl Jung. And that will help you know whether you're an E, an I, an S, an N, a T, an F, a J or P. And I won't go into all the details about that because I can't pretend I understand it. But imagine what happens to the extrovert personality... In a church which is largely made up of introverts intently focusing on their inner spiritual world, the way they talk about God, the way they talk about His presence, knowing His nearness, the hymns they love and the hymns they choose to sing, the language they use, can very often lead the extrovert personality to the conclusion that if this is Christianity, I'm not a Christian. Because I don't easily relate. To some of the feelings and expressions that I'm hearing around me. And it's not necessarily the case. The issue may simply be personality, not God, not revelation, not the truthfulness of the gospel. Not only are there different personalities, but there are different life experiences. A person finds themselves in the middle of a group of relatively secure individuals, but themselves feel insecure because of their own life experiences. They may end up rationalizing their continued insecurity in the presence of others as doubt. A lack of reality about the power of God. They may do it in other ways, but doubt is an option, it's a possibility. So you need to know yourself, you need to know your limitations, and you need to know your makeup and be honest with yourself when you're struggling and wrestling with issues of doubt or uncertainty. To make sure you're dealing with the right things. You also need to know your needs. And I want to highlight three simply. You need to know that you need to follow. When Jesus called people to repentance, he called them to come and follow him. We often rightly stress that repentance is about a change of direction. But when repentance is reduced to the language of giving your heart to Jesus... That's not actually very helpful. Jesus' message was to repent and follow me. If you turn to Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 1, you'll see the way in which Mark sets that out at the very beginning of his Gospel. You'll find it on page 1002 of the copies of the Bible in the pew. I just want to draw your attention to verses 14 to 18. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Mark brings together these two themes of repentance and following. You will find them, if you take time to read Mark's Gospel, often brought together in the life and teaching of Jesus. We tend to separate them out rather too much. Forgive the reference once more to 1 Peter, but remember what Peter says at the beginning of his letter. We're here to live our lives as temporary resident aliens in the world in obedience or for obedience to Jesus Christ. Your Christian life needs to be based around the intentional, thoughtful, thoughtful, following of Jesus in his example and attitudes and behavior. You need to do this. You need to know your need for worship in that however you feel, you need to know that you give God his place. I often find Psalms 42 and Psalms 43 very helpful in this. I'm sure many of you are familiar with those Psalms. Um, You'll find them uh, on page uh, 567 and 568 of the Bible. And there is a theme that runs through them. The context is slightly different. The context is not the psalmist sitting down and reflecting on doubts about whether God exists and that kind of thing, but they are anxieties and fears and doubts that are raised by his circumstances and the circumstances of people opposing him. And uh, he says in verse 2, you are my God, my stronghold uh, of of Psalm 43. You are my God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, I will praise you with the harp, O my God. Well, that's all quite provisional. Provided God comes up with the goods. But then there is this refrain for the third time in these two Psalms which really belong together. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. For ever so long as you believe in God, give God his place. Be careful about patronising God. About allowing God to exist as some comfortable expression of your limitation. Be careful of idolatry. Remaking God in your own acceptable image. Worship God and give him his place. Unless you have the confidence and the conviction to say that he does not exist. And thirdly, I'd say pray and don't stop praying until you've decided not to believe anything anymore. And even then, keep praying. This is the difficult one, I think, for most people. It seems completely contrary to reason that you should pray if you're having doubts. Is it it not contradictory? We say to ourselves, is it not hypocritical? Is it not inviting wrath to descend? Well, I think the model for us is the man in Mark chapter 9. You might like to just turn to that passage. You'll find it on page um, 1013 of the copies of the Bible. This is just after the transfiguration. Verse 14 says, When they came to the other disciples, Jesus, that is, and James and Peter and John, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. There then follows a record of it actually happening. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think that exclamation is one of the finest prayers in the whole of the Bible. Mark doesn't try to twist it. He just tells it as it is. He doesn't say, I do believe. Thank you for helping me overcome my unbelief. Which might seem more logical. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. One commentator translates the phrase this way. The man is saying, Lord, help me just as I am. A doubter. The prayer is honest. And this is all too difficult to understand. The followers of Jesus aren't up to the job. So of course it's hard to believe. Help me. A doubter. The prayer is focused. It moves from the man's need. It moves from the disciples' failure and becomes an encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ must remain the focus of our faith as Christians and the focus of our inquiry and the focus of our prayer, even in doubt and uncertainty. And the prayer is answered. One commentator puts it this way. His cry expresses humanity and distress, at being asked to manifest radical faith when unbelief is the form of human existence. His cry expresses humanity's distress at being asked to manifest radical faith when unbelief is the normal form of human existence. You need to know your needs and you need to pray and keep on praying. You need to ask and keep on asking. You need to knock and keep on knocking. You need to seek and keep on seeking. Because such prayer encounters the grace that will sustain the soul. It may well be that over these last two Sunday mornings, as we have looked at this theme, for you, I have raised more questions than I have answered. It's entirely possible. It may be that as you have listened over the last two Sundays, something that I have said or not said is leaving you deeply dissatisfied in thinking about this, or I have found it unhelpful, if that's the case then I really would appreciate hearing from you. I will have an opportunity to come back to this before the end of June, and I'd be very happy to. And I'm very conscious that as I sit and think about these things, I'm not you. I'm not struggling with what you're struggling with. And I may not be addressing some of the issues that you need to hear. So if there are things that I need to hear on this thing, then I'd be really keen to hear them. Let's pray together. Lord, as a group, community of people in this room today, there aren't any of us here who don't deal with issues of uncertainty and doubt and anxiety in different aspects of life. We recognize it's part of our human condition, and we are grateful that Scripture recognizes that it is part of our human condition. But we do need your help. We need your help to be honest with ourselves. We need your help to be honest with each other. We need your help, strangely, to be honest with you. We ask that we might know the help of the Holy Spirit, even when we feel ourselves hugely removed from you. The help that enables us to think deeply and truthfully about ourselves and our circumstances. The help that enables us to think deeply and truthfully about Jesus Christ. The help that enables us. To think about scripture and what it says to us and how we handle scripture and its place in our lives and in our world. Lord, we thank you that we celebrated communion here today as a community of broken, fallen, sinful human beings. But broken, fallen, sinful human beings who bear witness to your grace, your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for all the gifts that you've given to us, the abilities you've given to us, the capacities that you've given to us, the things that make our lives rich. We bless you for all of this. But we pray that most of all, above all things, we will be able to see Christ clearly and to follow him. In whose name we pray. Amen.